Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. Today's episode, we are not talking blockchain or NFTs, but we are going to church to rock out for Christ. Okay, not really. But Sam actually recently interviewed Andrew Mall, author of God Rock, Inc., a new book out now on University of California Press, and it delves into the business of niche music by examining popular Christian music in America since the 1960s. And in doing so, the book kind of asks all these kind of questions around the idea of crossover, pop artist or Christian rock artist, you know, they existing squarely in the spotlight of major popular music has been a thing all my life. I remember in my early teenage years of becoming a music fan, kind of finding out some of the punk that I heard was supposedly Christian with like bands like MXPX and like the label Tooth and Nail. But, it, you know, if I turned on the radio or flipped on MTV, I was seeing other Christian groups such as the, you know, ever loathed Creed or P.O.D. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years later and indie rock stars like Sufjan Stevens or David Bazan of Page of the Lion are on touring circuits and getting 8.0s on Pitchfork alongside of plenty of, you know, non-Christian groups. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the presence of Christian popular music seems to always have been at the shores of the mainstream or squarely in it. And, you know, even today, some of our biggest pop stars right now came out of what, you know, you can loosely define as a Christian music scene. But once again, what does that even mean? I think it can tell us something about how genres and music scenes are really constructed in ways that go well beyond the ways that we think about music scenes or genres. So like beyond the sound or region or era or whatever it may be. Well, Sam and Andrew Mall have plenty to speak more about on this subject. But, you know, before we dive in, I have to remind you, as always, please rate and review us so that we can spread the good word of Money for Nothing. And please sign up for our infrequent newsletter at moneyfornothing.substack.com. That's the number four. Here comes the music and then the interview. Enjoy. So, just, so this book is about Christian music and Christian kind of Christian rock music. And I'm just wondering if you could start by just like contextualizing this world a little bit for listeners who may or may not know that much about it. Like how I know that Christian music and Christian rock music is a big deal, but I don't really have a sense of, of how big a deal it it is. So the best way to describe the Christian music industry in the United States is as kind of like a parallel infrastructure to the not Christian music industry to to what the the Christian music industry calls the secular industry the general market. Um, so the Christian music industry exists in kind of a parallel infrastructure to what they call the general market and what you and your listeners might just know as the music industries. And what I demonstrated in the book is that when the Christian music industries really kind of formed around these emerging genres of Christian rock and other forms of Christian pop music in the 1970s, they were largely independent from the existing infrastructures. There were new labels, there were new management companies, new radio stations, new publications that all existed to document and to promote 
Christian popular music and rock, and also to exploit it, to make money off of it, to distribute it, and to sell it. And this sector uh, of the music industries gradually grew um, and became bigger and bigger and bigger um, throughout the 1970s and the 1980s. And we can talk in more detail about that if you like, but we got to a point in the late 1980s, 1990s, where the largest Christian record labels were grossing tens of millions of dollars, and they were attracting the attention of the existing major record labels at the time. And over a period of about four years or so, the largest Christian record labels, and many of the smaller ones as well, were all purchased and acquired by major labels in the general market. And that remains to this day. The, the two largest, well, of the three largest Christian record labels, two of them are still owned by a major record label. So uh, Capital Christian Music Group is the, the biggest one, um, and they have kind of built their music group around Sparrow Records. And the other one is owned by Sony Records, the third one, Word Records, the, the used to be owned by Warner Brothers, and it was it was Warner Brothers executed kind of a partial sale to Curb Records, which is kind of a large, kind of like a major indie, a large indie, um, in the 2010s. And then Curb Records eventually bought the other half of Word Records. So as as far as how big this is, there there's. There's data. There are data that we have from the 1990s and early 2000s that are publicly available that essentially show that the revenue earned by Christian record labels was reaching six, seven, eight percent of the gross revenue of RIAA reporting labels in the United States. So that's kind of small, but it's also bigger than other breakout numbers we have for, say, jazz or classical music or even Latino music at the time. Um, so it's kind of this substantial niche um, that ends up being a, a really uh, a really important line item on the balance sheets of those of those record labels. We don't have publicly available numbers for that anymore. I don't have a sound scan access, access to sound scan, so I, I can't tell you. I can't document quantitatively um, how how big the market remains. Uh, but I, I can tell you that if you look at streaming numbers. Uh, for some of the largest Christian artists, for Hillsong United, for example, um, you, you see that they're reaching into the many millions uh, of, of hits. Um, and uh, the same, that, that music is promoted broadly in much the same way that popular music is promoted across streaming services and, and still on radio stations as well. Radio is an interesting kind of component of this also because radio was a huge promoter and a huge indicator of the growth of Christian music in the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. So it, it served a huge purpose of promoting the music. Um, and then after the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that kind of deregulated, among other things, ownership of radio stations, we have the emergence of two major networks of Christian radio conglomerates. One is called K-Love and the other is owned by Salem Communications, and they are largely responsible for essentially having Christian radio stations in every major radio market uh, around the United States. Um, and th those stations are still, they're still there, they're still present, and they are still an important driver of consumption of, of Christian music. No, for sure. I mean, that's this one of the, the, like, the long car drive games. It's like, 
is this a modern rock radio station or is this a Christian rock radio station? And the same thing with country, you know, is this country or is this Christian? No. So, so it's really interesting. So you, you describe this whole world, you approach it from, from a different perspective and one that jibes, I think particularly well with, with the kind of money for nothing take on things, which is that instead of describing this as a genre, you describe it as, as a market, which is something I think before we kind of, dive into the details it's, it's worth um it's worth like unpacking and thinking a little bit about what that formulation and what that approach gets you because i mean it, it's um on, on money for nothing we talk a lot about music as a commodity and tend to kind of discuss it as a commodity that functions through a like a corporate or commercial ecosystem um it's kind of like i would say this is like the base metaphor we tend to, to reach for and, and the really interesting thing i thought about your description of this as, as as a market is the question of boundaries and the question of who's inside the market and who's outside the market in a way that 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 I thought really helped to get at uh, the stakes for these artists and, and, and some of the, the dynamics that otherwise I think I would have never really thought to think about. Yeah, so I I draw the the concept of markets from from the industry from from thinking about the cultural intermediaries that work for record labels and that work for radio stations and that help manage artists and help book their tours um how are they thinking about the music oftentimes they're not thinking about it in terms of genre or at least using that word that the, the way that music scholars might use um, they're thinking in terms of finding musical elements or musical characteristics that connect specifically to particular audiences that they want to reach, to whom they want to sell tickets, um, to whom they want to promote streaming or sell records, uh, to whom they want to sell as advertisers for radio stations. So my one of my motivating ideas for this particular taxonomy or you know hermeneutic is is really to think about what can we find in the object of study itself if the object of study is this industry what can we use from within that industry that can make sense to help us understand the music and the way the music is organized the same way that the cultural intermediaries understand it so maybe a, a good a parallel moment is Eric Weisbart's book on, on radio in the United States, where he's talking about commercial radio formats. And he's talking about genres also and how they kind of move fluidly in and out of commercial radio formats. But AOR is not a genre, right? Top 40 isn't the genre. I mean, we know what rock is. We maybe know what pop is. Um, but radio formatting doesn't always go by genre. So that was my starting point also, is thinking about how how the marketplace kind of shapes the ways in which music itself ends up being categorized. And then, you know, once I got to that point, it's like, okay, well, is it a top-down construction? Are there promoters and radio promoters and programming directors? Are there label personnel, A&R people telling these artists how, how to do it? Um, or is it kind of bubbling up from the bottom? Are there artists who are kind of, you know, finding new ways of, of expressing themselves that are, that are really connecting with audiences? And the way that it's talked about in the industry itself is, is both. They, they would like to hear innovation. The, the, the corporate suits would like to hear innovation, do like to hear innovation. 
from the artists. Um, but they can't throw too much innovation at a defined audience because they're afraid that audience is going to revolt. And they can't afford that. Uh, I mean, maybe they could have afforded that in the 90s when there is a ton of money flowing around, but they certainly can't afford that in the 21st century. The business of, of selling and promoting music to audiences has gotten really, really challenging for everyone. No, no, no. Th that approach makes a lot of sense. But, but one of the things I think that's really interesting about how you describe Christian music functioning is the the diversity of sounds and styles that can fit in that market. And, and, and oftentimes we tend to think about, you know, marketing categories being created, but then in some ways producing genres that have some organic or semi-organic coherence, you know, thinking about like the split of music, a variety of musics into kind of country music and like quote unquote race records in the twenties or thirties, which is something we've talked about on the show before. And what's really interesting about this Christian music scene, if, if I read you right, is that because of the very specific cultural dynamics, the religious dynamics, not always, but sometimes more things can fit in as Christian music. Um, and you kind of talk about this with these two concepts of um, kind of ethics and aesthetics and the relationship between them. So the market for Christian music is an aesthetically diverse market. And if and when you take the time to listen to a Christian radio station, oftentimes it can also be aesthetically diverse. It'll play a variety of genres. Uh, and I think the major reason for that is because the organizing characteristic of Christian music is not how it sounds, right? The organizing characteristic of Christian music is what it expresses or who expresses, right? So what it expresses, does it express something related to Christian belief? Or who expresses it? If it doesn't express something that is clearly related to Christian belief, is the person expressing, the artist, the musician, the songwriter, do they identify as Christian, right? So, so there's a tangent here that there's a whole lot of Christian music that you would listen to, and lyrically you would not be able to identify that it is Christian music without knowing who the artist is. The Christian market got real kind of concerned about this in the 1990s, and they tried to uh, enact a rule that you couldn't be, a song couldn't be eligible for a Dove Award. The Dove Awards is the Christian industry's equivalent to the Grammys. You couldn't be equivalent, you couldn't earn a Dove Award if your music didn't express something related to Christianity, Christian scripture, Jesus, God, etc. And they had a terrible year that year because some of the songs that were the most popular were by Christian artists, but they didn't actually talk about Christian belief. Is this the, the God is my girlfriend? Yeah. So you could listen to many of these songs. And if you replace the object of affection um, of this particular song with a girlfriend or boyfriend or a romantic partner of any gender, um, then it would be indistinguishable from you know, from, from a song of praise or worship directed toward the Christian God. So because of this, like because of this kind of aesthetic diversity, uh, you have both Christian record labels and their, their kind of broadcast partners and their media partners, not so much talking about what makes great music or what, you know, the salient, you know, musical distinctions of, you know, subgenres might be but rather talking about the morals and the ethics and the approach to music 
that each Christian artist and Christian songwriter brings. It's it's really interesting because I've heard people who work in the Christian industries tell me that the defining feature are the lyrics, um, and it's and it's not the music. That they they often say it's the only, and they use the word genre. It's the only genre defined. Um, not by its music, but by its content. They use the word content specifically, which is kind of funny. Um, but to refer to the lyrics or the kind of life perspective or life view of the musician and the songwriter. So the ethics, I argue in the book, and, and I and I argue elsewhere also, thinking about how ethics relate to aesthetics in the Christian market gives us a better sense of what counts as Christian music. You know, you mentioned boundaries and the aesthetic boundaries themselves are too flexible to be useful for anyone working in the music industries, for anyone listening to Christian music, for anyone observing the Christian music industries, whether as an industry participant, um, as a journalist, or as an academic. And so what I show in the book, or what I argue in the book, is that we have to think through the ethics of participation as well. And in the Christian music industry, that also aligns with morals that are taught and are learned through religion and as a component of religion. And the whole point of doing it like that, not the whole point, but part of the point, one of the results of doing it like that, is that we can take kind of the same construct of the interrelatedness of ethics and aesthetics and apply it to other markets, apply it to other scenes, subculture, genres, whatever taxonomy you want to use, Everywhere you look, you will find a style of music or a music community that is bounded not only by the sound of its music, but by the approaches it uses to create and distribute and consume music. The, the moment that kind of founds, the foundational moment of, of Christian rock music is the Jesus People movement of the 60s, which is incredibly important and I think relatively unknown for, for many listeners. I'm wondering if you could just uh, talk about that really briefly. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, so the Jesus People movement emerged in the late 1960s and early 1970s, or rather it emerged in the late 1960s and kind of died off by the mid-1970s. And the best way, the, the best kind of capsule definition is it was the Christian counterculture. It was, it took place uh, along the West Coast, um, both in Southern California, but also in Berkeley and around the Bay Area, um, in San Francisco rather. Uh, and it exists kind of alongside the counterculture that we already know about at the same time, maybe a year or two removed. Um, and this, the way that this story is told is that there were countercultural youth who were searching for something, searching for meaning, right? And, and they didn't find it in the counterculture. They didn't find it in free love. They didn't find it in mind-expanding substances. They didn't find it in grooving to the Grateful Dead. So they started to explore spiritual practices. They didn't find it in meditation. They didn't find it in, in Eastern religions. But then they kind of gravitated to a new version of Christianity that was, that was being preached. It was a version of Christianity that taught that Jesus was just a regular dude um, and that he, he was accessible to individuals. If you reached out and prayed to him, you could speak to him just like you would speak to a friend. He was loving and caring um, and could really help you find meaning for your life. If this sounds familiar to some of your listeners, that's because this is the Jesus that most evangelical Christians worship today. 
this is the kind of accessible, really personal. Um, I approach every act of my daily life with religious intent. Um, even if I'm not formally praying to Jesus multiple times a day, uh, like I'm kind of constantly in conversation with him. This, this, is, this is one way, a very common and popular way uh, for living evangelical Christianity uh, in the United States in the late 20th and early 21st century. WWJD. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, but it's, it's all this is new in the late 60s and 70s. And, and so what it does is it, it sets up kind of an alternative approach to religion in contrast to Catholicism, which is, uh, along with Episcopalianism in the United States and Orthodoxy, is really rooted in experiencing ritual and liturgy. It also sets it up uh, a new form of Christianity that is different from Christian fundamentalism, which really advocates for adhering to the rules as they are written in the Old Testament. Um, and it also sets it up as an alternative to what we call mainline Protestant denominations. So the mainline Protestant denominations are the ones that have names. So there's like Lutherans and Methodists and Southern Baptists, right? And there are others as well. Those forms of Christianity, like a lot of youth were rebelling against it in, in part because it felt stuffy, it felt old, it didn't feel like it connected to their daily lives as as kind of countercultural youth, or at least youth who um, whose values didn't align with those of their parents, right? So, so what we have in the Jesus People movement is this is this new way of experiencing religion, but also of practicing religion that really speaks to this growing individualism of of youth in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And most of them grew up listening to rock and roll. Yeah, and they wanted to hear music that reflected kind of their, you know, acoustic guitar toting vibes, right? Like not not only did were they listening to rock and roll, they were also playing it, right? I mean, geez, I, I feel like everyone I know could strum an acoustic guitar, three chords on it. And and that's I feel like that same was probably true in the late sixties and early seventies. But it's it's also connecting with with musicians who who already know they want to have a career in music or already do have a career, even if a small one, in music. So another thing that uh, one of the things that's happening is these these many of these musicians who have also similarly traveled to California, to San Francisco, and to Southern California and Orange County. Uh, you know, they are connecting with this new version of Christianity, and they're like, well. What can we do to 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 live our faith and to preach our faith and to communicate how important it is? Well, we'll just do what we already know how to do, which is write songs and sing. And many of them are like kind of psychedelic rock artists. Many of them are just kind of acoustic guitar driven, um, you know, like birds, like rock and roll, like like the band The Birds. Um, and many of them are kind of. Or I talk about Keith Green in the opening chapter. He's a pianist and singer songwriter. I think I I think I relate him like if you listen to Elton John, like there's there's a real sonic similarity between the two. Um, so Keith Green is writing songs that are piano driven, but they're also rock and roll songs, at least as we would define rock and roll in the 1970s. And and so what's really interesting about this is that as these musicians, uh, many of whom are like real participants 
in the Jesus movement and often had careers in the music industry prior to it. So they're not, for the most part, emerging out of Christian music making. They're emerging out of music making that then go Christian. And you talk uh, about this fascinating tension between the their ideas of whether their music making them and record making are ministry, so they should be given out, you know, the good word free to as many people as possible, or are they commodities? And kind of the story of the 70s into the 80s is in, in Christian rock music is, is the figuring out the balance, the proper balance between those two. Yeah, Keith Green is is Keith Green is the perfect example of this because he is really the word is convicted. He's really convicted about the purpose of his music is to minister to people and even to preach uh, and and get people to convert to Christianity. And he gets to a point where he feels very strongly that you can't force people to pay money to hear the word of God. You can't force people to pay money for the chance to be ministered to, or for the chance to experience conversion, religious conversion, he feels that is morally and ethically wrong. And so I think I, I think this is how I opened the book, actually, is with him asking to be let out of his contract so that he can self-release his music uh, and essentially give it away. So it, it is absolutely this real tension between uh, between music as a commodity and, and other objectives for which recorded music might be put. So, I mean, interestingly, like the Christian record industry against which Keith Green is rebelling, it's already, it's only a few years old and it's already really kind of hard and it's not the right word, but it's already really landed on this idea that, you know, our, to support our artist ministry, we have to run profitable businesses. Like they get to that idea very, very quickly. And it's, I think a really interesting way to think about the parallels between um, the the Jesus people, uh, the Jesus people movement from which many of these artists emerge and this recording industry that uh, that kind of uh, emerges to support and promote them um, is thinking about how they are coming from or what exists before them. So what I mean is just as the Jesus people movement is in part, um, reflecting reactions against these other forms of Christianity or that, that exist in the mid to late 20th century, the Christian record labels that emerged to support the Jesus People movement's artists also exist uh, in, you know, in, in distinction from or distinction to the existing record labels that, that sell and promote Christian music. Um, so, you know, leading up until the early 1970s, any of the labels that recorded, and I should be specific here, white Christian music, none of them were interested at all in popular music. None of them were interested at all in any of the folk music that had been kind of bubbling up in the, you know, in the, in the live music scenes. Uh, they were only interested in recording like hymn singing and, uh, and, and classical music, um, and it's just it's it's just really it's it's important moment where record labels where for the record labels that want to release and support the Jesus music artists um, they are they're kind of working against the trends in the in what had been up until that point the Christian music industry the point is the Christian music industry doesn't start in 1970 or 71 it, it its history goes back 
earlier than that, but they only start releasing Christian rock in the 1970s. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the, the point here that we're talking about white Christian music, where the, 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 the dynamics and relationships between black Christian music as, as an example um, and black popular music is, is a totally different <laughs> story, it feels like to me. Yeah, it's a totally different story. It's one for which I don't have, did not have room in this book. So, you know, I think an easy way to criticize the work that I do in this book is that it doesn't account for the experiences of of black artists and and, and the 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 African American or, or black music that's that's also religious. So that that's true. I I, I haven't written about black gospel music in this book. Um, there are many artists who are writing, uh, many authors who are writing about black gospel music and have written about black gospel music way more than I could. But if you were to look at the history of record labels, uh, we see there are many record labels that are that are releasing black gospel music in the 50s and 60s and 70s and promoting it to a wide variety of audiences, much like Tooth and Nail starts to do in the 90s and the aughts. There is a secular audience for gospel music, and it's... I don't think that the white Christian record labels, or rather the Christian record labels that are recording white artists, I don't think they have they learned anything from the gospel labels. Like there's a real uh, there's a real boundary. If you want to say another boundary, there's a real race boundary that that divides uh, that divides the, the the Christian music industries. So, what basically happens is that in the '70s, you start then getting artists who are playing music to the Jesus people as they kind of filter into a variety of more established churches, those artists become increasingly popular and kind of like you talk about uh, Sparrow Records and, and these record labels become increasingly profitable because it turns out there's a real market here. And then you start building out that infrastructure of radio stations and record labels and touring networks um and that's that's really the 70s into the 80s is really when the parallel infrastructure gets created right yeah absolutely and it tracks with the growth of evangelicalism white evangelicalism in the united states during the same period so historians and media scholars that have written about for example, the growth of the U.S. suburbs or just the growth of, of non-denominational evangelicalism in general, or maybe the rise of the religious right in the late 1970s and the 1980s. All these are telling different versions of the same story, that um, that, that religion is, is increasingly important and increasingly present in the public sphere in the United States, um, that it is not something that you hide or that you segregate in terms of your identity or how you present yourself to the public at your place of business, at your school, whoever you are, you're religious. If you're a non-denominational evangelical, you're religious your entire, like your entire life in wherever you are participating. So as religion itself is increasingly present in the public sphere, um, we see that there are, there are consumers who identify as Christians and identify as, 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 as non-denominational evangelical Christians that as I said before, are, are searching to find, uh, searching essentially to ethically consume. Uh, I talk about ethical consumption a lot in some of my classes, and, and this is maybe another version of it, that you know, if you care where your money goes, um, if you care about the ethics of the people who create the goods and the services for which you're paying, 
then if you are religious, then maybe you want to support businesses that are religious. Uh, and, and that th these these kind of growth, the growth of the Christian music industry tracks with the growth of the suburbs, tracks with the rise of, of mega churches, tracks with the growth of non-denominational white U.S. evangelicalism. And then kind of in a, in a funny counterpart almost, because this consumption, this ethical consumption grows, it means that these record labels are increasingly successful. And so then they get attention from the majors, which is almost like the the story of like health food and like small niche uh like you know ethically made brands that they all get ended up you know micro brews they end up being bought by anheuser-busch because it turns out they were successful so then the question is how are the ethics still a part of those businesses right so how how are the ethics still identifiable like not just a brand but actually do they communicate something about how that brand conducts its business or how that company conducts its business right um so i can go on at length about microbrews if you want um but maybe an easier way to think about it is 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 parallels in music is to think about listen the christian record labels are not the only labels that the majors are buying in the 90s they're buying they're acquiring a ton of not christian secular indie labels too um and they're doing so in part because because of the explosive growth of alternative rock as a viable commercial um genre or or really you know commercial radio format um it or another way to think about it, actually this is this uh, this is actually going to track better in my head um is the transition of, of indie music away from signifying DIY in the 1990s and toward signifying a particular sonic aesthetic, kind of this twee aesthetic in the early part of the 21st century. If you talk about indie music today in 2021, you're not talking necessarily talking about a music that is produced following DIY ethics. But if we were talking about indie music 25 years ago, there would be a common understanding that we are thinking of music that that exists, its modes of production distribution exist separately from the infrastructures of the major record labels and their subsidiaries. So it's they get purchased in the mid-80s, right? Some of them get purchased. The first one to get purchased is Word Records, which is is purchased in like the mid to late 1970s, actually at the height of the oil crisis, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and then it goes through several ownership changes, which uh, I, I document a little bit in the book and, and document more elsewhere, including being purchased by um, major book publishing companies. Uh, so it's owned by a couple of the largest book publishing companies. So it's the first label, Word Records is, one of the oldest Christian record labels, and it's the first one to be bought by a secular company, a company that is not rooted in a Christian marketplace. Um, but when Sparrow Records is purchased in 1991, that really opens up the floodgates and kind of kind of symbolizes or signifies rather that the Christian market is open for business and we are willing to entertain uh, any and all offers. And it's also, I mean, you write about it in a really interesting way. It's kind of, there's an arms race component to it where as soon as one of, you know, in this little scene, or it's not that little, obviously, but that period of time, but in this, you know, relatively self-contained market, once one of the major players has access to the resources and distribution 
of a major, a major label, it, it means that it's really difficult for the others to compete unless they also get access to those resources. Yeah, an arms race is a, I mean, that's a, a metaphor that works really well. And for exactly these reasons, um, the marketplace then gets redefined by a much heavier resourced label. Um, they can pay for higher production values like Good Charlotte, right? Um, but they can also pay for placement. You know, in, in a marketplace that is dominated by physical retail, you want your CDs and your cassettes to, to, have, to be seen when people walk into the store. You also want them to be in the store, period, right? So Walmart um, or Kmart or, or Tower Records might not order music from you because they just don't order. They don't have existing accounts with Christian record labels. There's no way for you as a record label to access them through your distributors, right? So a partnership with a secular or general market major record label then becomes essential to connect to those retail outlets. If you are trying to get your music heard on, on top 40 radio or general market commercial radio stations, you need radio promoters that know how to work those program directors. Um, those radio promoters aren't cheap. And the, the Christian labels don't have the resources to hire those people. Um, so, so that's another kind of thing that these resources of the major labels begin to pay for. And of course, you don't want to be left behind because you still want to remain relevant in the Christian market. So with all these resources, now, now there's more money coming into Sparrow. They can, they can outbid anyone else for, for the best artists, um, and that would leave the others behind. So of course, then the others also have to, have to find um, the resources of a similarly-minded major record label uh, so that they can remain relevant and remain competitive even just within their own Christian market. While some of these Christian artists use the resources of the major record labels to break into the pop mainstream, to do full crossover, it seems like mostly it is intended to kind of expand the sub-market, that that's where the real benefit is, is this kind of consistently record-buying, um, kind of very relatively stable, relatively loyal fan bases and that you could just reach more Christians with Christian goods, Christians who maybe didn't know there was this rich and, and deep of a Christian music community, rather than trying to send the biggest Christian stars into the Billboard top 10. So this becomes, that becomes the organizing logic, the organizing reason, the reason for pursuing crossover in the general market. Not because you want your Christian artists to be superstars, but because you want to let, there are Christians who listen to the general market radio stations, the commercial radio stations that are buying CDs and cassettes and, and LPs um, at Walmart, at Kmart, at Tower Records that don't know about the Christian market, that they can't see if they don't already know about it, right? So if you can find a way to reach them, then maybe they will start digging into I don't want to use a catalog because we have this whole other part of our conversation about catalog, but maybe they'll start digging into your label and start finding other artists. Maybe they won't turn off a Christian radio station when they stumble across it because they'll recognize voices and artists and bands that they hear on it, right? Um, maybe they will walk into the Christian retailers that are selling the kind of full line of uh, this week's new releases of, of Christian music. Crossover is not an attempt to to only expose Christian music 
to people who aren't already Christians. It is primarily an attempt to expose Christian music to people who are already Christians and are maybe predisposed to wanting to hear more Christian music. Kind of thinking again about the, the relationship between ethics and aesthetics in, in Christian rock, I mean, it's interesting that, that, that the specific kind of that, that type of relationship in, in, in the music creates kind of a couple of interesting dynamics that, that you, you explore in the book. For one, it it seems like, and you kind of describe that there's a, a, a remarkable kind of lack of cultural memory in Christian rock music, where the big bands from the 90s are really not being listened to, that they're not having the same kind of catalog sales. And I wonder if that is at any level about there's so much pressure on the ethic of it is that which allows this kind of more capacious definition for what Christian music is. But then in some ways the genre doesn't quite function as a genre in the same way. So you don't need to listen to two generation back in the way that uh, a punk band probably does. So I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that, that makes total sense, right? Because it makes total sense in part because the mainstream of the Christian market isn't looking back to previous years and eras in the Christian market for aesthetic influences. You're absolutely right about that. Where are they looking? They're largely looking at what has been popular in the general market, what has been popular among non-Christian artists, among secular artists, right? And the reason why they're doing that is because, and again, this kind of stretches back to the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, uh, because they're trying to still provide an alternative, not like capital A alternative from alternative rock in the 90s, but like an alternative to secular music for Christian listeners, Christian audiences, and Christian consumers. And the best way that they know to do that is, is to replicate the music that is successful, that is successful with audiences um, who are not Christian. So, hey, if we can find an artist um, that sounds like this, if we can incorporate the music, the musical characteristics that, that turn out to be really popular or connecting with audiences, then we can also be successful as this kind of parallel infrastructure, as I said earlier. The, the, the exception is in the kind of Christian subculture genre scenes, like Christian metalcore and Christian hardcore. There are, there are artists now um, that have been present and, and been important in these, in these scenes and these genres for a decade and longer. Um, they're important not only because they have Christian audiences, but they're also important because they have audiences who are not Christian and because there are musicians and bands who are not in the Christian industries that are citing these Christian bands as influences. So I mentioned bands in the book like Demon Hunter and Under Oath. And no matter how you feel about metalcore or, or melodic death metal, these are, are bands that have been and will continue to be influential for kind of aggressive masculine hard rock bands moving forward. Yeah, and and you write about how in the in the starting in kind of the late 90s early 2000s partially as a as the cultural fallout of like the 90s alternative boom continues, you do get this kind of wave of Christian bands that are also they're like sub subcultural almost, right? Like 
Christian punk bands where they're not being played on Christian radio and in some ways end up kind of forming another kind of punk scene, which is already, you know, totally happy to, to, to fragment into as many tiny sub scenes as, as anyone wants. Yeah. I, I use this to think about crossover and to kind of reframe what crossover actually means. You know, when we, when music industry scholars and music industry professionals talk about crossover, they're usually talking about an artist or a, an album or a song that had been targeting a smaller and more niche audience now being kind of accessible to a much larger audience, right? So I think the word originally meant literally crossing over from genre-specific charts in Billboard to the Billboard Hot 100, right? So it's like this this moment of cross, you know. Uh, in the 1950s, for example, we can talk about uh, R&B and rock and roll artists crossing from from black charts and from country charts um, to a top 40 chart. And just like in the 1990s, you know, I, I talk about Amy Grant, who's crossing over from essentially Christian's equivalent, the Christian market's equivalent of top 40 um, to the secular top 40. But at the same time, we also have, you know, as you mentioned, these sub subcultural uh, Christian bands and artists who they don't they're not financially successful. They're not commercially successful in the Christian scene. So they kind of skip this crucial step of like being being successful in the Christian markets before they find success in the mainstream markets or the general markets. So so how how does a theory of crossover then kind of account for that or accommodate that? Or in a different sense, how does a theory of crossover uh, account for artists who have audiences in multiple markets, but don't have significant commercial appeal in either of them. A great example of this is someone like uh, David Bazan and Pedro the Lion, or someone like Sufjan Stevens, right? Both of these are artists who emerge from a Christian scene, play for Christian audiences, and then find a decent amount of success in the world of indie rock, but never, they're not charting. They're not like commercially successful. They're not in a Billboard Hot 100. But they have stable audiences. And, and in some ways, I almost wonder if their ability to find that success is at least partially a result of their of that failure to find success in kind of capital C Christian music. That if they're not quite categorized that way, and so almost because of their subcultural status within the Christian music economy and the Christian music market, they're able to cross those boundaries um, with less trouble. So there are some examples of artists who just weren't, they tried to succeed in the Christian market and they couldn't. So they just kind of abandoned that and then tried to succeed in the general market. The biggest example, this is Katy Perry, right? She was originally a Christian singer songwriter. Her first album fell flat. So she retooled herself, redesigned her music, hooked up with producers, and now she's a major pop artist. So I get what you're saying that maybe, maybe the Christianity the faith of like these indie artists doesn't doesn't impede their success um, in connecting with audiences outside of the Christian markets. I'm not so sure that I always agree with that or that I agree that's always the case because there's certainly resistance uh, or at least there has been resistance in the past to to prioritizing the music over the faith background of some of these artists. But that that's not within like within press, within kind of reactions to um, to some of this music. 
But part of it is also these artists, I don't know if they're chasing something, like chasing success, but I, I definitely know that how they express themselves changes, right? So those two artists that I just mentioned, like David Bazan and Pedro the Lion and, and Sufjan Stevens, early recordings, their faith is very clear and present in their music. Later recordings, less, right? So it's kind of easier for someone to listen to it and find something of value, something worthwhile there. And the longer that happens, the further back into kind of cultural memory recedes their faith, right? Um, I remember reading reviews of Carrie and Lowell, the, 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 um, the Sufjan Stevens record, and people being surprised that faith is present in it. And I was reading that and I was like, well, like maybe faith wasn't present in like the BQE or in the age of AIDS or in or in Come On Field Illinois. But if you if you go back to his first records, if you listen to Seven Swans, for example, like it's it's very kind of faithful. Um, and so this also reflects kind of you know, how how music gets talked about and gets promoted. Um, it reflects a short memory among among the dis the, within the discourse of popular music and, and within the memory of of consumers and listeners themselves. One of the most interesting studies I thought in the book was your discussion of um, uh, tooth and nail records and the ways in which you do get, it seems like the mid to late 2000s, kind of a, a, a new a new kind of Christian underground music that like you kind of gesture towards does in some ways both manage to kind of develop. It seems like more organic characteristics. It seems like those bands were like listening to each other. And also, as you, you just mentioned, in some ways a, a more satisfying relationship to the mainstream, certainly a more influential one. The story of tooth and nail is far more complicated than what I lay out in the book and, and far more rich. I, I think that's a fine project for someone to undertake at some point uh, is to write like a definitive um, biography or critical cultural study of, of tooth and nail records. But they absolutely do latch on to this, this rising uh, larger cultural interest in alternative rock, in aggressive forms of rock and roll, in punk and in metal and in hardcore, right as that music is kind of cresting. Uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Now, none of their bands are trying to sound like, you know, like Limp Bizkit, um, but, you know, they're being played on the same modern rock radio stations that Limp Bizkit might have been played on in the in the late 80s and early 90s. And they, they get to a point where uh, the, the music that they're releasing and the artists that they're signing, they are touring with not Christian artists. They're touring with secular artists, artists who don't record for Christian labels. They're touring with Vans Warped Tour kind of constantly. So this is a label um, who they're they're following several trends, right? So they're they're following, and I, I hate to say they're following, but they're they're capitalizing on several trends. They're capitalizing on the growing popularity of of punk and hardcore and metal in popular music in general in the mid to late 90s. And they also then capitalize on, on the investment of major record labels. At the beginning of our, of our talk, I mentioned that the largest Christian record label is Capital Christian Music Group. Before it was owned by Capital, which is a subsidiary of Universal, it was owned by EMI. It was the EMI Christian Music Group. But 
EMI's Christian Music Group bought half of half of Tooth and Nail. Uh, there was a, a partial ownership relationship uh, between those two labels in the early aughts. And one of the results of that is that the label Tooth and Nail no longer actually had to focus much energy on promoting their artists within the Christian industries. They left all that work to EMI, which was headquartered in Nashville, had all the relationships with the Christian radio stations and the magazines and the journalists and all that stuff. And instead, what Tooth & Nail did is they hired a bunch of people from like other Seattle area record labels. Tooth & Nail is in Seattle. So they hired people from Barsic and from Sub Pop and from some other from other, other, other labels or, or, or publicists that had worked for those labels to really work on promoting their artists outside of the Christian industry. So another way to tell that story, the story of Tooth and Nail, is that you know they they were chasing kind of two different markets uh, at the at the same time. They were chasing they were they were chasing the Christian markets, and they signed artists who were really well suited for Christian radio and for kind of the the Christian listener demographic. And at the same time, they they definitely did not abandon their their excitement and commitment to um, to kind of heavy, you know, rock artists. Um, they 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 signed artists who kind of fit all these different subgenre categories that have been popular in the 21st century. Um, well, I mentioned a lot of death metal, but you know, just the uh, metalcore is like kind of huge southern rock. Um, the punk and melodic hardcore. They have some, they, uh, even, even your basic kind of commercial sounding emo, they had several artists in the early parts of the 21st century that would have fit alongside commercial emo artists on, on other record labels as well. And so somehow, in some ways, it kind of flips the paradigm on its head, but that by being in between these two scenes, it's actually able, these kind of bands are actually able to find more solidity than by throwing, you know, throwing all their eggs in the basket of either one. And in particular, it seemed like these bands um, really benefited from the the kind of extended infrastructure of Christian music, that there are these festivals and festivals and gatherings and kind of both like word of mouth, but also, also just, you know, it seems like a whole set of <laughs> touring spaces that are available to bands that identify as Christian that really would help, right? I mean, I was, you, you described kind of um, at length in the book, the, your experiences at some of these festivals. And I was a little bit jealous of the 13 year olds. I'm like, my parents didn't let me go to a big festival, but if like the rule was that there was no drinking <laughs> and like it fit, you know, the basic, uh, like, you know, adult supervision safety standards. And that was like built into the festival. They would have let me go at 12. I was like, that actually sounds kind of great. Yeah. It makes, it makes total sense. If you'd like step back and think about it. I mean, this one way to describe it, this is like a really easy way to describe it is this is a kind of branding. This is a way to connect with audiences who are your target audience. I mean, this, this is a target consumer and you're like, okay, so how do I shape my event so that, it is exciting and accessible to this target kind of audience or this target body of consumers. But that's not the, the only way to think about it. And, and, and in the book, one of the things I try to show is that these 
cultural intermediaries, the festival promoters, the people who work at record labels, the people who work with artists, artists themselves are kind of navigating several different ways of thinking about their audience, right? So one is as a commercial target, but the other is as people with whom they share a faith. And then for many of these tooth and nail artists, it's also people with whom they share a scene, right? So thinking about the stability of, of, of a music career is something that I, that I get at in the book as well. And in my mind, there are like two different ways to think about it. So on one hand, you're absolutely right that there has been and there remains a large number of opportunities for people who fit the mold of the Christian music industries to have a sustainable career. Um, by performing to audiences at festivals and at conventions, by kind of fitting the need for commercial radio programmers. They still sell records in decent numbers uh, to Christian listeners and consumers. So if you, if you fit the need, if you fit the ethical and the aesthetic requirements of that market, um, then you do well. So that's one example of sustainability in the Christian market. But the other one, the other one that tooth and nail bands have, have chased and have been really, um, really successful at chasing is what if you didn't necessarily have to act a certain way? What if, what if you could find an audience um, that liked your music, not despite or because of your your faith identity, but because your music was really attractive to them, right? So, so that's what many of these tooth and nail artists have tried to do and continue to try to do is to promote them as music first and not faith first. That's something that I like. I I don't I don't think I draw that distinction enough uh, in the book, but it's something that I've thought about a long time. Uh, that that they're they're really prioritizing. Um, and promoting their music and not their faith. No, totally. And, and it's interesting. It's also that it wouldn't, it doesn't surprise me that this approach has gotten, garnered more success in recent years as the margins and the difficulty of making it as a musician and certainly as a rock musician have increased. That, like, that any little bit helps. <laughs> and it seems like the kind of, alternative networks that these bands, tooth and nail bands can reach, like we were just mentioning, really would give them a leg up. And I, I think that the label itself, I'm not in contact with anyone at the label anymore, but in recent years, they bought back the shares that they had sold to EMI um, to, in order to buy back their, their share that they had sold to EMI they signed off on their back catalog and converted ownership of all those masters to EMI so that they essentially started afresh as a new record label without a catalog. Uh, so for the last several years, they've been kind of building that and they have you know, licensed um, rights to reissue some, some classic stuff. They've done a lot of vinyl reissues, for example. But their back catalog, as far as I know, is officially owned by well, not EMI anymore, but now Capital. So it's a you know it's a it's a strange moment also because I write about Cornerstone Music Festival as being a central like physical place where this network um, uh, where this network found meaning, where it found audiences, where bands toured. Um, and Cornerstone doesn't exist anymore. It it, it last ran in two thousand and twelve. There's 
There's another music festival that kind of emerged in its wake. I talk about that a little bit in the book as well, Audio Feed Music Festival, but it's not as big. Um, so the kind of the central place where where this kind of subcultural Christian community could gather no longer exists and instead is kind of spread out. This is the story of many subcultures, obviously, in the last several decades um, that people might not be traveling as much. Subcultures are not as rooted to geographic regions with the rise of social networking and just, just internet connectivity and so on. This Christian subculture or the, the subculture of, of like Christian metal and punk and hardcore is, is, uh, is a similar story. The flip side of the, um, these bands and, and just another kind of, I think example that you talk about that kind of gets at some of the complexity of this issue are these bands that kind of come out of Christianity or come out of Christian rock music and then find success in the mainstream. And then have a very often a very ten tentative relationship to those roots. So whether that's like Switchfoot, you you write about mute math that are bands where they, they really didn't want to be understood as Christian bands. A lot of the resistance at the time that those bands were trying to break it in the general market, trying to break into the general market in the mainstream, was this idea that the people that were that were promoting them, um, not the people at the labels, but like press people or program directors at radio stations, maybe purchasing managers at retail locations. You know, if they saw the word Christian in that band's one sheet. Uh, they they weren't going to program that band. They weren't going to order that band. They weren't going to book that band, right? And it's it kind of like that bias is decades old. Like by the time Mute Math and Switchfoot are trying to break in the early aughts, you know that bias is several decades old. It's several decades old in part because, or the, rather, the bias itself is rooted in the sense that Christian popular music is by nature derivative of, of of general market pop. That's about it. I really, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Thanks, Sam. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for engaging with the book so deeply and in such detail. I really appreciate it. And I enjoyed chatting with you. This was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.